0: I've made another podcast conversation is with Dean O'Kane who is an ex professional snooker player from New Zealand and for those of you who know me you know that I'm a big snooker fan and it was pretty cool to talk to Dean who's mixed it in with the best of the best, Stephen Hendry Jimmy White, Cliff Thorburn playing these guys at the world championships, he was pro for a long time in the eighties and nineties, uh, made a couple of quarterfinals, so he had a pretty successful career. So it was really fascinating to have a chat with Dean about his career. Enjoy. <laughs> So you're based up in Auckland, are you?
1: By Hickey Island, yes. Oh, nice. What's it like up there? I've not not visited before. Oh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place, but it's a small place, you know, so you sort of go round and round and round in circles, but oh, it's yeah. close enough.
0: So do you, you jump on the boat often to go to the, the mainland or how, how does
1: that work? Yes, I was in there yesterday. So... Um, um, I sell a bit of real estate in the city, and um, occasionally over here. So uh, my office mm. is in the city. Yeah. Okay, uh, downtown. Yeah. So, uh, so where where did you grow up originally? Where are you where are you from? I was born in Christchurch, and then um, when I was when I was seven, our family moved to Auckland, North Shore, Auckland. So that's where I started playing snooker when I was about eleven or twelve. Twelve years oh. old, eleven or twelve. Yeah. And how did that
0: come about? Was, was there parents interested in snooker or your friends or?
1: Not at all. No, nobody was. No. So, um, uh, Pop Black was on TV in those days. So, that was the source of inspiration. But mm-hmm. um, at home, we had a um, table, t- we had a rumpus room, games room. And we didn't have a pool table or snooker table. We had a table tennis table. So I used to spread a rug out over the table tennis table, put chalk markings where the pockets should be, and use a broom handle and ping pong walls. So that's how I started. <laughs> and then um graduated eventually to a couple of um public snooker clubs. Um in one in Birkenhead, which was a real dive, and then one in Takapuna, which is um, which was where, really where I learned to play um, mm. on the full-size tables. Well, I probably started there full-time when I was about 12, and um, the age limit was 15 or 16, I think. Mm. So dodged dodge the police for a few years and got <laughs> slung out a of time, more than a couple of times.
0: <laughs> uh, I just, I love that, um, you know, and, you know, just creativeness around the snooker tail. I don't think would every kids do that these days. They, well, they wouldn't need to, right? You just that, but back then you didn't have any choice, and you really liked to play snooker, so it was just whatever you could make of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, but I, I, I just fell in love with the game as soon as I saw it. You know, it was a mm. real fascination, and there were some very good players at Takapuna Snooker Room. Okay, and combined with. um TV pop black on from the BBC on TV. Those were uh, there was inspiration there, and um, you know I was an avid reader from the from the library, getting books out about snooker, Spencer Mm -hmm. on snooker and snooker by Joe Davis. Yeah, uh, top players of the time and of yesteryear. So we didn't have videos in those days. Mm So. In the, in the instruction manuals or and they were a source of quite ins, you know, some of the water so, so they were quite inspirational as yeah. well. And um and so I just set about practicing, you know, by myself, obviously, sometimes with the lights off even, just mm. to get as much table time as I could. And um I think I eventually got a queue for about twelve or thirteen dollars or something, you know. Slightly better than a broomstick, but not much better. (laughs) And uh, and played in Takapuna for a lot. And I think I started playing in tournaments. There are always tournaments around. And I realised that when I was about 13 and when I was 14, I won the New Zealand under-21s title. So that would have been Mm -hmm. my first win.
0: So so going just going back to so the books and things, they were just your coach basically, were they? Or did you have other players that you could, you know, get some coaching from and some knowledge? Or it was just how did you sort of build your
1: the books initially were it, but then when I was um 12 or 13, it might have been, might have been 13, um Hurricane Alex Higgins came to New Zealand mm. and toured. And I played him in an exhibition in um, Auckland, <clears throat> um, downtown Auckland, when I was about 13. And he beat me, and um, obviously, but um, he was a great inspiration, incredible talent, you know, a real mm. genius at the mm. poker table. Uh, probably not so good off the table, but on mm. the table, and incredible talent. One of the great talents to ever um, play Snoop, play this game you know, out of every generation, one of the great talents. So um he had a New Zealand manager who'd organised his itinerary for tours, 15 or 20 exhibitions or whatever. His name was Fred uh, Fred Hawken, and he was an old billiards player from years ago. So once Alex, I phoned up Fred to see if I could get some lessons from Mr Higgins. Yeah. Uh, uh, he had uh, <laughs> already left uh, New Zealand, but Fred said he'd come over and um give me a bit of coaching. So um, he had been a very good billiards player, but um, he was keen to see if I was, uh, you know, serious about it. And then realised I was. And he just got me potting, just practising around the black spot basically the whole time, just just right around the black spot. So Mm -hmm. that I could score breaks. So he would come over probably a couple of times after school, couple couple of times a week, and we would go down to the Snooker Room and um, and practice down there. So that he was good. He was good for me and um, my father. Or my, my, no, no one in my family encouraged me to play. I, I was self motivated.
0: Oh, awesome! Yeah, because I guess and there wasn't not really many players from the Southern Hemisphere even today that have really sort of made it to the top.
1: There was, was it Eddie Charlton
0: back that's in the right. day?
1: He, he was an Aussie right. player. He was, he was the most uh, well-known player in New Zealand, really, mm. re- regardless of the, the British players. But although he never, you know, he never won the world championship, mm. world professional championship, but uh, he was a, he was a tough player. And I played him in New Zealand when I was 14, I think it was, but um and I played him a few times after that uh, in his club in Sydney. What was that called? Um, t- the Tassels Club near um, yeah. yeah, Empire Park um, in Sydney. So I beat him there, and I beat him twice. I beat him in a pro am in the UK. Then I beat him on the pro tour when we played once as well. Mm-hmm. But he was a great name, and used to tour around New Zealand a lot, playing exhibitions. And, um, of course, the touring professionals were few and far between in New Zealand in those days, so I'll try and get wherever I could to see some um, top players. So
0: so when did you start realising that maybe, was it Alex Higgins and that, you know, realising, oh, I've got, you know, he he must have said to you, like, oh, you're pretty good at this game. And then when, when was the point where you're like, okay, maybe I can go overseas and start you know trying to mix it with all the all the British players and Scottish players.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well Alex first of all he told me to get a decent cue and throw mm. that queue away. So Fred was instrumental in getting me a proper ash cue mm. um a maple Canadian maples um, thing. So um but after winning the new under-21s title at 14 I won the full Auckland championship when I was 16. And um, I guess the writing was on the wall. I started winning just about every tournament I played and culminating with the New Zealand title when I was 17. So I won the full New Zealand title at at 1980 Mm. and um, then went, uh, I mean, it was always the ambition to go to the UK and further further my uh, experience and improve as much as I could in the UK, which was the home of the game. So I jumped on a plane in February 81 and went over to London. And um, actually the previous year, Jimmy White had won the World Amateur Championships in Tasmania, in Australia. So I did a trip over there to watch him play, and that was a great inspiration. Mm. And I met his manager who had a snooker club in Kingston-upon-Thames, a chap called Henry West. So we, I, hooked, I hooked up with Henry at, at, their, at their club. Uh, I sent a telegram first saying I was arriving and basically had nowhere to stay. And um, I had, a you know, two suitcases, a Snoopy queue, and 700 pounds in my pocket. So I just took it as it, as it came and um, had a bit of a, a you know, a rough start, you might say, um, staying in bad places, attic rooms and, you know, almost like squat situations. so terrible so this, you know i really quickly realized my standard of living went would go went straight down compared to living in new zealand but i was there and committed to play snooker and do the best that i could and um i found it wasn't long it was a few weeks it wasn't long after i'd recovered from the flight i ended up in the hospital i was that sick and eventually got came out and um Started practising at Kingston Snooker Centre and there, at the world champion was Cliff Thorburn at the time, mm. who was one of the greatest overseas players of all time. And he was a tough, real tough cookie. But there were a lot of other good players who played there, John Spencer, Jimmy White, Tony Mio, John Virgo, mm. um, and a lot of a whole host of London, top London amateurs played there. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and some of them turned pro later as well, actually. Uh, so I, I started playing against play a lot of really good players and even some of the professionals. And my game developed very quickly by being in, in that environment and practising, you know, absolutely assiduously and being exposed to the, the almost like the top level of the game, top level players um, in, in that club in Kingston upon Thames. So my improvement just really just took off. That it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened by staying in New Zealand. no, <clears> no <throat> chance that would, that would not have happened. You have to. I mm. a big fish in a small pond in New Zealand, but I wanted to be a small fish in a big pond in the UK. So and there was no other way just to get on the plane and go. So, so how many, or how, was it years
0: or weeks or years till you got to that level where you saw you know, got on the circuit and started playing these players regularly in competitions
1: mm-hmm. Well I won three tournaments as an amateur in the UK uh, when I was over there, 81 and 82 um, and because uh, you could earn money as an amateur in snooker with, with prize money, you know mm-hmm. competitions you actually won prize money so amateurism didn't actually truly exist and <coughs> Uh, Then I went back to New Zealand in 83, had a bit of a bad year when um, uh, a lot of people, all the clubs in New Zealand and the players started handicapping me to try and stop me from winning tournaments and things like that. So I got pretty disillusioned with it and um, put in my application to turn pro in 84, went back to the UK, that was it. Started on the pro tour in 84, so I would have been um, 21 it's quite late these days but um at that time you know there's a few of my friends in london who are about the same age who turned pro as well so because obviously you know the peak or what it seems like the peak of
0: snooker popularity was about that time when you were <clears throat> turning pro because because I've, I've looked at you know when on wikipedia and the games that they used to have at the world championships where they play first to 40 or something crazy right the the World Championship final would be across three, four, five days and obviously not that viewer-friendly. viewer, viewer friendly. Was that that time like of, you know, what was that time like of that transition? You may have just caught the back end of those players just playing and grinding to the era of, you know, Jimmy White and you know, like Kirk Stevens and Steve Davis that played a bit more free-flowing free snooker.
1: Well, I was lucky. I came in right okay. at that, that mm-hmm. um. Uh, that development peak where it really, really boomed, and boomed in the eighties hugely from what it was uh, before, and uh, uh, Steve Davis <clears throat> won the world title his first world title in eighty one, so um, that was big news, and the TV audiences started growing, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and so and the prize money increased, you know, considerably as well, but. Um, it, it snooker lends itself to being a great spectator sport on on television and it's very cheap to cover for the for the for the um, actual coverage you've got you know a couple of roving cameras and a couple of cameras up top uh overhead mm. cameras so it's not like you're um following formula one race or mm. you know a golf on a golf course all the cameras they need it's a very quite um cheap to cover. And it's but still a great visual spectacle. And of course, the players, the f- their faces were on TV a great mm. deal. So the players became very famous. Um, especially guys like Steve Davis, Jimmy White. Uh, you mentioned Kirk Stevens as well, Kirk, uh, from Canada. Uh, he made a there was a, a great tournament, the London Masters, Benson and Hedges were one of the sponsors for a long time. Mm. So that was at Wembley Conference Centre. There were great moments there. Kirk made a maximum break and uh, Jimmy White won it in big style. Um, And, of course, Dave was winning it and um, Alex Higgins was there. And some of the older players were still around competing, like Ray Reardon, Mm. who was a tremendous character. Uh, six times world professional champion. So I came in at that point where the old brigade still existed and was still playing pro events. And then the whole new group of players, headed really by Steve Davis, came, came through in the early 80s. And um, as I said, I turned pro right in amongst that in um, 84 and played 17 straight seasons and um, actually went back for another one again after I retired.
0: And is it fair to say, sort of, was it was it the Davis era and, and you know, your era and I've, I've watched a few of your frames and you're a very flowy player and, you know, you get down to the shots a lot quicker. Was that the era where it changed to be more attacking minded compared to the sort of 70s and 80s and that more of a, a grind of a, of a match?
1: Because obviously mm-hmm. that's what got mm-hmm.
0: the people to start watching it as well was players like yourself just whipping around the table, potting long pots, not playing safe all the time and attacking the game,
1: really? Probably the leading player um, of, of that style of play at, at the time was um, Jimmy White mm-hmm. and, and Alex Higgins, one would have to say. So um, that that new style, that attacking style, of scoring kind of snooker, uh, what really did um, make people sit up and take notice as a far more aggressive game. And um, Davis was, yeah, he was a great scorer and great long potter. He was, he was, he had the all round complete game, a bit like, um, he had modeled his game on a bit like Ray Reardon, who was uh, a great technician, a great tactical player as well. Davis was uh, an incredible tactical player. He can put, tie you up in knots all over the table, even if he wasn't scoring heavy, big breaks, like Jimmy White was knocking him big breaks all over the place. So Davis was a very, very tough player to beat. And that's why he dominated the entire uh, 1980s, virtually, until mm-hmm. um, Stephen Hendry came along in the late 80s. And then Hendry... Won seven world titles in nine years in the 1990s, mm. so it was quite incredible. We had two major players: one who dominated the 80s, and then Stephen Hendry from Scotland who dominated the 90s, and and everybody else in a way was second best. Mm. That they, they, they lifted the game to uh, you know high new new levels that it hadn't been played at before. I suppose your career spanned <coughs> you got the Davis
0: era and the Hendry era. Um, But can you tell me a bit about your sort of your first um, time at the Crucible, so playing in the World Championships, because I know you played there quite a few times and or maybe even talk about just getting there from qualifying. And Because I'm not sure if this is correct. So I'm from Preston and Mm -hmm. that's part of the reason why I love snooker because um, we used to have a few tournaments there. Um, My first... yeah, the Guildhall. Yeah. So my first time going there would have been about uh, would have been about seven ish so maybe like 1994. And I remember seeing Dennis Taylor playing there. And obviously everyone was a big Dennis Taylor fan with the glasses, you know, a character. Um, but yeah, I just remember those days of going to watch the snooker at the Guildhall. And that's where I I fell in love with it. Um, but did was it is it right that there used to be the qualifiers at Preston for the World Championships
1: as well back in the day or was that's absolutely right yeah. yes so uh, the first couple of times I qualified for the Crucible Theatre we played the um, uh, all the qualifiers at Preston Guildhall mm-hmm. um, usually a couple of months before even three months two or three months beforehand um, and Gil- Preston Guildhall was a was a, a superb venue. And it was great. It was great for the players. It was a multi table setup. I don't know if you remember that, Sam, but yeah. at least eight, eight, eight tables, yeah. I think, at least. And then the audience had a great viewing because you, you could, they could walk around. It was a bit of an amphitheatre style um, auditorium. So they could walk around and they could watch or, or watch two, three matches at the same time. Mm. Uh, they got it set in the right place. Yeah. So I loved that venue. And I played some of my best ever snooker at Preston Guild Hall. And so going back to qualifying for the Crucible, I, I think I had to win four, possibly five matches to make it to the Crucible, which was the first time was in '85. And I lost in the first round to David Taylor, who was um, you know, a very high-ranked player, former mm-hmm. World Amateur. He, he, he was full, you know, he's on the pro tour and he won a tournament or two. But I didn't really hit it big until I qualified, re-qualified again um, in 87. 1987. And again, I won, had to win four or five qualifying matches, but my game was, was really, 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 I was was on top form as good as I'd, as I'd better than I'd ever played in my life. Mm -hmm. And I was knocking in a lot of century breaks and in fact got the highest and, and the qualifiers. And then, um, the draw was—I made it to through to the last thirty-two, and nobody came close to me in the qualifiers. So, really, played uh, my best stuff. And then <clears throat> they used to see that on grandstand or whatever they, the sporting program was. They did a live draw of the world yeah. championship. <laughs> yeah, I remember grandstand. Yeah, Des Lyham um, and yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, Des was great. So they did a live draw. I think it was, and I, I. And came up against this uh, world number two Cliff Thorburn to play him in the first round, last thirty-two of the Crucible. Wow. So what had happened to the previous? Davis was world champion, so he was well, he was. Um, was he number one uh, Yeah, Davis, was, I think Davis was world champion.
0: Yeah,
1: but uh, Dennis Taylor and um, uh, that was a, So that was eighty-seven. In between that, so Joe Johnson and Dennis Taylor had won a world title each, but Davis then came back and dominated again. Um, What had happened the previous year was that I'd join a management team. um, My manager was uh, Robert uh, Windsor. Who was uh, a real high flyer lived in North London on a four-acre estate um, with you know a flock a flock of pink flamingos and Maribu storks in the gardens, swimming pools in a mansion and Rolls-royce motorcars, cars everything just the mm-hmm. full works. but he managed Cliff Thorburn and Kirk Stevens as well okay. so we were in same management group, Cliff and I mm-hmm. when I qualified to play it. What had happened the previous year, I practiced a lot with Cliff. I mean a, a hang of a lot, because Robert had a championship table at his home and called Highcroft, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and um Cliff absolutely, you know, he just he just tore me to pieces on the table. So I had to, had months and months of that. And eventually I had um, and he was tough player too, great safety player. Mm-hmm. Um when I went to the table, I was always on the bulk cushion, yeah. <laughs> you know, trying to uh, um, save a frame or two, but I, I, I got annihilated by him. And then soon after a while, I started to have a little bit of success and I kind of lost my fear of him. Yeah. Just from that exposure of playing, you know, a former world champion world number two at the time. And, um, I learned a lot from Cliff. I suffered a lot from playing him because he was a very slow player as well. Yeah. yeah. If you missed, if you left him in, that's it. You just take the balls out for the rest of the frame, you know, just <laughs> doesn't that, hit in, right? So, uh, and we played around at a few other clubs, not just at Robert's house. And I, I, and I actually beat him a few times in practice as well prior to me qualifying. For the World Championships, as soon as the draw was done and qualified, we stopped practicing against yeah. each other because it was ridiculous. It's actually about a month prior to the World Championships, I think it was. So when, consequently, when we played in the first round of the at the Crucible Theatre live, you know, live on TV, you know how what it's like. It's a big deal. Yeah, and um, I went five one down. Suddenly, found my um, game and won nine straight frames to beat um, Cliff 10-5.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: so that was, um, uh, that had never happened to Cliff, never. Yeah. So me being a young, fresh, fresh-faced fresh boy from New Zealand, I was 24 years of age, um, you know, there's a big press conference afterwards and everything, and all the cameras were rolling. It was just like, a, um, you know, a, it was unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. No, no one had done that to Cliff. And I remember his um, one of his jokes, his lines in the press interview, uh, one of the press people said, so, so Cliff, this is quite uh, sensational. How many times have you lost nine straight frames? And um, <laughs> Cliff being, yeah, he's a really funny guy. Cliff has, has got an yeah. amazing sense of it. He said, um, Oh, I'd say around about 30 or 40 times (laughs) because it never happened, never, never, ever. But uh, he took it very well. And uh, as we're in the same management stable, um, you know, it could have been quite awkward, but uh, Cliff took it very, took it right, just on the chin, as it were, and congratulated me. And uh, I got on and won the next match in good style as well. And then came up against Jimmy White in in good form and he beat me in the quarterfinals. But that was really where my career turned, Mm. was that victory against Cliff in the Crucible, on TV, under the lights, at the most important Mm. venue in the World Championships. And I had a very good career from there on in. And I think I spent 10 years in the top 32, most of that in the top 20 in the world. Mm.
0: And I suppose... Because, you know, in, in sport there's, and, you know, you were practising with Cliff and again, like he was afterwards, you know, he was all about, he was obviously he must have been happy to help you. You stopped practising together before the game, but I think there is something in sport about that where you do help each other out. I know you're all in deep competition with, with each other, but you hear so many, and you hear it in snooker. I think there's a good example at the moment with uh, Mark Williams. And I think, is is it Jackson Page, the the kid that he, smoked off the table it might be a similar sort of situation to what you and Cliff had that maybe Jackson next time he'll go and beat Mark Williams in a few years but you know having that where people are still helping you along like it's not all bottled up and keeping yourself to yourself and you know and sometimes Mm -hmm. by helping others you help yourself as well right you learn other things from other players
1: yeah I mean it, it was slightly different with um two guys, you know Steve Davis and Stephen Henry. Mm-hmm. they they very much stood mm-hmm. alone. They didn't socialize with the other no. players. They practiced alone they it was they did their own thing. And most of the players really, we got on pretty well. We got on quite well. We had a lot of fun. There's always after the sessions had finished, the, everyone would have you know meals or food, drinks mm-hmm. in the bar, hotel, and all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of um, camaraderie. There's quite a lot of um, you know you made friends on the tour. Mm-hmm. Um, but but um Davis stood out and he he um separated himself from everybody else. And when Henry came along, he he adopted the same model, he did the same thing as well. So um, the, we, the rest of the players, we were're all sort of uh, socialising and practising against each other, et cetera. Yeah.
0: So so when you're preparing, you know, for these, you know, you've had some really big games at the Crucible, like how, obviously, snook is a big mental game. There's, you know, it's... How, how did you prepare? Do you know, like, how, what was it about you that you could, you know, deal with that mental side
1: of the game? Well, I think you, you prepped, your practice regime helps. It's... um. What do you say? I mean, if your preparation is king, that's everything. Mm. So if you prepared well, then usually you feel quite good going out to pl- into the arena to play. Um, so your confidence really comes from your preparation, mm. I think, or well, partly anyway, and um, just getting through the pain or pressure barriers in the match matches so that you that so that you loosen up a bit and and play Mm. so the focus and concentration that you you have which is essential for snooker um you really have to develop that comes through practice and just through constant match play playing more and more matches all the time Mm. so that you really do develop that 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 um mental focus and stamina and um a little bubble of constant bubble of concentration if you like mm. a lot of it's experience helps right
0: because it's a lot of like kind of and i guess you get into that flow state right because i've, I've watched snooker since i was 7 so i've but watched so much and you obviously you see some guys and again there's pressure environments and stuff and like you said that experience comes in like in a world final where you see Ronnie just Never even worrying because he's won six or seven. But um, just yeah, having that constant focus because you see when they just they switch off for a tiny weeny second and lose position. Do you, did you ever get that? You must have got that flow state where you just pop, pop, pop,
1: pop, and just you know in tune with the table. And mm. no, that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate to play at that. You know, in the zone, as they say absolutely mm-hmm. in the zone everything you do you're hitting every shot just right and then put the cue balls on the string you get you're just positioning the white ball wherever you wherever mm-hmm. you want to basically it's second nature holding the ball and the positional play that goes with that so um that that's the best state of being to play in um but um it's, you don't always play that well, so it's very important that your worst, that your bad mm. game is of a good standard as well. So that's quite important, Snooker. So you're not always playing your A game. Sometimes it's your B or C game that you have to play and try, still try and win when you're not playing that well.
0: Mm. So who was who was the toughest opponent to play on the tour? I mean, you, you pretty much um, played. You know, you would have played ev- everybody
1: around in the 80s and 90s. Who who was the toughest? The toughest were really the slowest players and the tactical mm. players like Davis, uh, Terry Griffiths. Um, I mean, I beat them both once, but they would have beaten me a few times, several times as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, those, tact- those hard matches, tactical players, Cliff, again, you'd, you'd say would be in that that category. Um, and then... Um, when Hendry came along, he had a much more attacking, aggressive potting style style of play. So the hardest players were were really the tactical, um, all round players who can tie you up in knots yeah. with safety play. Because
0: and and how how did the tables change in that in that era? Because it looked like from the eighties, especially to the nineties. The nineties tables look. I'm sure they're way different now, but they look a lot similar to this
1: era of table. Like what well, we was the difference Initially, we played on BCEs. I think they were Bristol coin equipment, but um, <clears throat> they were a slightly different table. I thought the middle pockets were a bit bigger than Riley tables. Mm. And um, yeah, uh, <clears throat> I mean, now the tables are made in China and by Star, I think it mm. is. But uh, um, we had mainly two sets of tables one was Riley and one was BCE. So I played well on BCE tables, but I think generally everyone would prefer to write with the Riley tables. They're much more consistent all round mm. and um, a lot more like the tables that we, that are played on today in the modern era. Um, although they're made in China, they're very, I mean, they're super fast, you know, um, light, lightning quick. The cloths are shaved, double shaved to make balls run even quicker. So you've got to be super accurate and super precise. If with your your position, if you miss hit a shot, you can be you can be four or five feet out of position. So on oh, twelve foot tables, so you have to really hit the ball very very well to play well on those tables. Mm. You have to be exceptionally well. They're tough tables. So, so what what would you say was your
0: biggest achievement in the game? I mean, you were, you said you were pro for seventeen years, so that's you were on the circuit quite a long time. Se- seventeen
1: seasons. 17, so. 17 consecutive seasons. Then I um I requalified in two thousand and six and seven, as well for the pro tour. So I did eighteen seasons. Yeah. Um, well, you know, big scalps like beating Cliff when yeah. I at the Crucible, and then I beat Hendry when he was world number one, and I beat um, Davis. Uh, the last time I played him and I beat Jimmy white in the world seniors championship. They're all great hugs. And I beat Dennis Taylor and Terry Griffiths and Joe Johnson and all former world, all former world champions. So they were great wins. I was runner up in Hong Kong in a major ranking event. And then, um, uh, made, you know, made loads of quarters, finals, and things like that. And, uh, when I retired in two thousand one, I played some Masters Championships and I won three World Masters titles yeah. as well. So it's a combination of everything. So you know, when you're when you're up there, you've got to grab what you can, whatever you can yeah. get. So it's really only the exceptional players like um, Davis, Hendry, and now of course Ronnie. Mo Sullivan, who have um, blitzed the field and uh, won, won multiple world championships. So, yeah, yeah, you know, those players in their prime yeah. uh, were head and shoulders. They were head and shoulders above the second best players. So, mm. yeah, it was kind of like them and us. Hmm.
0: Well, I guess, yeah, we've got to discuss Ronnie because, um, I mean, what what do you think, it, and maybe not, not just even Ronnie, but... Um, Martin Williams and uh, John Higgins and I don't I don't think there was ever maybe that longevity of players that could actually go for what 30 years now what do you think it is about those players that they can just keep on going and playing at you know in the top being in a you know top eight players for for that long
1: yeah I mean it's quite incredible so um you know, maybe you could think of Phil Mickelson in golfers who won the PGA was he 50? Yeah, he was 50 last that. year. Um, yeah. But uh but Ronnie's an exception. He does run a lot, he keeps fit and he trains um a lot. So I think that whole ethos of looking after yourself off the table has come into snooker as well, just like many, just like many other sports that um it's not just what you do on the table; it's what you do off the table as well, and, yeah, and that includes diet and staying fit and practice. And um, whereas you know Jimmy was always out on the town and <laughs> having late nights, uh, yeah. so that cost him a bit. I, I would have thought, and um, a few few players, a few other players as, as well. Kirk, Kirk was like that um, very much, so. So it's become more professional, and yeah. all the players treat, have come into it as as real um, professional athletes in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but but Ronnie is exceptional. It's hard to say. You never know, but it's hard to say. I don't think there'll ever be another Ronnie O'Sullivan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think I think you're right, definitely about the
0: professional side. And look, that's not just in snooker; that's in all sports across the board. But, yeah, I mean, there was, what was was his name, uh, Bill something, the Canadian guy who used to drink, I don't I don't know if this is true, but the legend has it, he'd drink, you know, 10 or so beers before a game and plenty during juice That's right, it.
1: yeah. <laughs> Bill Werbenick, yeah. From, Bill Werbenick, um, right. From, from Canada, yeah, I played him a few times. Believe me, he, t- he started drinking in the morning, <laughs> so that um, he, because he had um the shakes. Right. In his queuing arm. So he thought it was something that would stabilize his queuing arm. Mm-hmm. But um uh <clears throat> look, he was he was a pretty good player. He was mm-hmm. a really good player. Um fortunately, I, ma- I managed to get the better of him, but uh uh yeah, that sort of lifestyle style, he was an exception. I mean, he would drink 30 pints in a match. And I remember playing him at the guild, Preston Guild hall, funnily enough, <clears throat> and it started with him going to the um, going to the lavatory after every frame, right? And yeah. then the more he drank, it's asked the referee for permission to go during the frame as well, <laughs> and then at the end of the frame, he'd still go to the toilet again. So yeah. you know, it just became it just became farcical, really. But um, that was Big Bill, Big Bill yeah. Urbanic.
0: Yeah, it's, it is funny just to watch back, and I'm a big darts fan as well, and I've sort of seen the era of the 80s where, you know, it was just a pint there on the table and no one batted an eyelid. Smoking was another thing that players did mm. right during games that was just sort of, that's yeah, what, yes. that was normal.
1: <clears throat> well, that was banned, really. I mean, the BBC were instrumental in mm. doing that because they, they just said, look, we're not going to cover if you are if you are sitting at your seat you're smoking or drinking we are not going to put your face on camera we're not going mm. to cover that and we'll just cover the snooker so the world snooker association adopted the rules um that there would be no smoking or drinking during matches um, at any tournaments which i think is a good thing yeah mm. well then i wanted to ask you about because I, I re-watched
0: um the dennis taylor versus steve davis final frame the other week i watched it Pretty much as a whole, it's a long, it's a long frame and much every single second. Mm. But it was interesting in your era where you were across where it was the foul and the miss rule. Oh, sorry, you didn't have yeah. the foul and the miss rule. Because I believe remember correctly, in that final, there was a point where Davis had Taylor in real bad trouble on a yellow, and he played the shot, and then it was just miss. If that had been mm. foul and a miss, then Steve Davis probably would have would have gone on to win the title. But it just seemed very You know, opponent to be able to get out of a snooker, and obviously Mm. now it's like it's called a miss because you're not you're trying to still get the ball safe, right? But back in half some of your career, the early days, that wasn't a thing,
1: right? That's right. I remember that, and I remember that specifically Mm. in the final frame, Dennis and Mm. um, Davis. So, you know, Dennis sort of took if you could say, you know, a slight advantage over the, the lack of rules mm. um, that were around then regarding a foul and miss. So he wouldn't have gotten away with it like he d- he did then. Mm. Um, that was was at 85. So it became quite a, a big topic for the WPBSA, the World Professional Village Snooker Association too, and the Referees' Association. And there's consultation with the professional players. How do we get? How do we get around that? And and mm. the the way, it wasn't, a, a, it wasn't adopted. It was adopted, but it had variations to it, and it really took quite a while to streamline the rule as it is now. Yeah. Basically, if you miss it, you're going to be replaced. Mm. I mean, it's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty harsh um, penalty. But if you mm. miss it, you will be replaced. Mm. So, and that's. Um, that's the way the, the rule is at the moment, but it took quite a few years to develop it into its current state of being. I think it was necessary because players were getting and taking advantage of that lack of mm. rule, ruling there. And um, Dennis, uh, a bit of an example there in the world final. Yes. Could you could you put your opponent back
0: in then at least back then or did the opponent have to yeah, take the said. shot?
1: Uh, no, he could put you back in. Yeah. Okay. He, so you couldn't the, just the snooker
0: them again, or just touch it and then go. Oh, there you go. You you, you go. Oh, you have no, to the, play the shot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's the it's the opponent's choice whether yeah. you um uh well the choice is still there whether he plays the shot whether he has the ball replaced or, is he, or he plays it himself he still mm-hmm. has his there's, there's three choices there mm-hmm. yeah so he can play it he can put you back in um as it is or you can have the ball replaced and make you play this play the shot again mm. it's um, a pretty comprehensive rule it's very it's very strictly enforced
0: yeah yeah and i mean there seen moments in the modern day where it's kind of and i know there's been situations where literally someone you know they've gone into the reds off the black to try and break them up oh sorry or played um um, a red and then got stuck in the reds and they've literally not had a pos- it's like impossible to get out of that situation, but then it's still called a miss because it's so yeah I know' it's, it's still quite you know I think there's still some improvements maybe they can make to that rule maybe a bit more you know common sense around some some situations I suppose.
1: yeah, something like that does require common mm. sense and a good referee a good referee would would exert that common sense I'm sure.
0: What did you just I wasn't going to mention the referees, but what did you think about um because I've heard you know Ronnie had the bit of an issue with the referee in the final there? Well, I never really considered referees as being obviously they're there to call the fouls and put the balls back on the table, but not really being a major person involved in it. But he became almost the star of the show because he was sort of getting, you know, and disrupting. The players, or you know, whatever will happen there with Ronnie. What, what was your opinion on that, and how referees should behave pl- while while the game's going on? Mm-hmm. Or a good referee, how they
1: behave. The best referee is the one you never see. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> what I mean is that you don't notice them. That's how, that's how good. If they're if they're that good, you don't notice them being there. Yeah. That's the best referee, and there have been many, many good referees along the way, but. Um, you know, the referee was probably going a bit slow and that um, put Ronnie off. So mm. he got the hunt with him a bit and um, kind of, uh, you know, lashed out, but uh, Ronnie's had quite a few run-ins with referees and um, yeah. officials in the past. So it's nothing, it's nothing new, but uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't surprise me. That doesn't surprise yeah. me with Ronnie. Well, there was that referee,
0: there's a famous one with Alex Higgins, where he's going, the referee's like, oh, I'm just going to stand here. And Alex Higgins like, oh, you're in my eye line. He's like, nope, I'm standing here. I'm not going to take your rubbish.
1: Don, you know, John big, Williams, I think. Was, yeah, well, he's the was Welsh the fella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Well, John was a good referee. And... um uh, he's Alex liked to intimidate people as well. So mm. if he could see an advantage, well, that's just the way he was in life and ca- his character. He, if he could take a liberty or intimidate somebody, he'd he would try and do it. And he tried that on with John Williams, but John wouldn't budge. So um, mm. yeah, he stood up to Alex. Um, uh, yeah, that's part of Alex Higgins' character as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the flawed flawed geniuses. Mm.
0: And I just got a couple more questions, if that's okay. Um so what was did you see an impact as with your success in as a as a Kiwi and obviously beating um Cliff and getting to the quarterfinals a couple of times, having a successful career? Did you see an impact in New Zealand around Snooker and you know
1: people starting to play and the popularity? Yes, there was game just you know, it was became very popular for a while and that the win against Cliff and that, that whole World Championship was shown on TV New Zealand mm-hmm. um, uh, every every night, every mm-hmm. evening. So consequently, you know, I became very well-known in New Zealand and um, went out and played a lot of exhibitions all around the country. And, uh, yeah, Snooker became very popular for a while in New Zealand and we had a couple of um, tournaments at in Wellington, at the leg- Legislative Council Chamber, actually, in the late 80s. Oh, yeah. So Stephen Hendry won one, and Willie Thorne won um, another. So we had two there, sponsored by Lion Nathan back in the day, and it was a beautiful awesome. one playing arena. But um, And that was all televised, of course, but it didn't last long. It sort of um, It had a, a few years of um, zenith here, if mm-hmm. you like, and um, the, the game is... I wouldn't say it hasn't died in New Zealand, but it's nothing like what it used to be. And no. there's a lot of clubs that have closed closed down. A lot of clubs have taken tables out of their yeah. facilities as well, full-size tables, mm. just because of the nature of snooker. The tables are enormous, right? Mm. And you need a lot of room around the tables mm. to walk around the tables and play your shots. So a lot so commercially, a lot of clubs found that to be they just 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 took up too much space yeah and um that space could have been used for other activities or you know retail within the club or whatever it may have been so yeah uh worldwide the game is booming absolutely booming but in new zealand it's um it's not yeah and i suppose you know like
0: because i i used to play snook quite a lot as a kid and again i was useless you know i'd probably get a At my absolute prime I'd probably be maybe getting on 22 break or something you know and I was playing quite a bit but I enjoyed the game but sorry blue brown pink and black blue brown pink and black
1: yeah, for 22
0: great. Oh, no, well, yeah, but that's <laughs> yeah. the thing, Dean. When when you get you'd pot a red, and I'd be playing a mate who's similar level to me, and then the pressure was just to pot the black to get that seven points. I wasn't even bothered about the next red, just get that seven points because that would be a big you know in the game. <laughs> yeah, of course. If it yeah. if it if it okay. was reds up against with the bulk colours, then I'd be like, Oh, yeah, I could go red, yellow, yeah. red, brown, red, blue, maybe, because yes. it seemed like there was less pressure mm-hmm. on them. Um mm-hmm. But did you, so do you do still do exhibitions in New Zealand? Do you still go around the country and play
1: working men's no, clubs I, and that kind of no, thing? No, I, I no, I don't. No, no. Really? I sort of went off it a bit, and um, I haven't. Uh, the last tournament I played in was just before COVID lockdown in Sydney, um, uh, the Oceania Six Reds Championship. But I haven't really de- dedicated um, myself in the last. You know, let's say, I mean, sometimes I go two, three years without picking up a queue. Mm. But COVID has mate, had a huge influence in the last two years. I mean, before COVID, to before 2020, um, you know, there was a series of World Masters um, uh, tournaments. I was due to go to Australia, to Bangkok, mm. to Hong Kong, and then up to the UK. So everything was cancelled. And I haven't played competitively since then. So I, I, think, it, I, I think I think I need to get into a good practice situation, and um, mm. that much is obvious because you only get out what you put in into mm. this game or any sport. You really have to dedicate yourself to it. And what with selling, you know, um, uh, you know, good quality real estate now around uh, Auckland region, mm. I don't really have the the time or the inclination to give give it as much as what I used to on the practice table. Mm. And also the facilities aren't really there. I'd have to get into a nice academy situation in Australia or perhaps Hong right. Kong or back in the UK um, and play on the proper pro tables as well. It's very important. You can't you cannot play on a club table and go to a pro table. Right. It, it, okay. it's, it's day it's day and night. They're right. That different. They're so mm. different. So the playing practicing conditions have to be right. And you have to virtually sort of become a full-time player again. So I, I can't see that happening mm. even this year. But um, I would consider playing World um, Masters tournaments again, possibly from next year on, if mm. I get into that right those right circumstances of, of practice and playing conditions. Because would
0: there be any sort of top-quality match tables in New Zealand at all, or just you just have
1: your club ones that? No, no, no pro tour tables. Uh, okay. No, there might be the occasional pro- private one, but um, yeah. It's a, as I say, it's essential to get onto those pro tables, mm-hmm. and um, uh, that's uh, you know, it's a, like a pitch and a putt, on a pitch and putt on a club table, or playing in a, at Augusta National
0: mm-hmm. on a pro table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's a bit of a funny analogy, but a uh, strange analogy. But they really are so different. You, you can't compete unless you. Playing, practicing under correct uh, mm-hmm. conditions. All right, last last question for you. This is so I just
0: want to clear something up about. And I, you played a bit of pool, I imagine. Um, and this is just for me when I'm playing my friends uh, at the at the club. What what rules do you play for for pool? Like your general rules of you know break off shot, like you know fouls. How, what do you play playing in you know with the ball goes in off. Where can you you put the yellow? Oh, sorry, the white. And can you go back, forward? Do you carry? What what do you, do you carry? play?
1: Yeah, and we play international rules, ball in hand on a falling Ball foul. in hand, so you can yeah. play, like, place the white anywhere. Mm. And it's a, again, it's a, it's a very harsh penalty for, mm. to, for a good player to, to give that to a good player, ball in hand. Mm. So that's why I play um, both. I don't play much eight ball. If I played pool, I'd probably play nine ball. Okay. So, um, you know, on the nine-foot American tables, mm-hmm. um, bigger balls, but, but bigger pockets, but bigger balls. It, yeah. And it's quite a, you know, you, you really need good positional play on those tables, even though the pockets are big, because you're only generally playing from one ball to another ball because mm-hmm. um, it goes in rotation, you know, one through to um, the nine ball. So it's it's quite, it's, it's not a bad game for not a bad pool game for snooker players, and mm-hmm. a lot of snooker professionals have played nine ball. yeah eight ball is sort of secondary to that, um, if you ask me but um, the, the 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 best pool game I think by without any doubt is the nine ball table uh, it's a nine nine ball on the nine foot American table. Yeah, I don't know if you remember there was a club I've been in Wellington for
0: about seven years. there was a club here called Fast Eddie's. Did you ever know about that club down here? Because they were the no, no I haven't.
1: Mm, yeah, they haven't were the been much
0: to, been Wellington match lately. Mm. Okay, they were the only place that actually had American nine ball tables, and now there's only there's only a couple of clubs that actually have you know or places up. There's a couple on Courtney Place, and I go to a working man's club to play on some nice pool tables. But yeah, it's a bit lacking, like in Wellington and I guess yeah, rest of New
1: Zealand for some good good quality tables and. Well, I'm on the um, I'm on the board and chairperson of Massey Incorporated, M A M-A-S-S-E, W C Massa Incorporated. We've got a few clubs in Auckland and Waikato oh, regions, yeah. and we have we have <clears throat> we have the seven foot pool tables, but we have nine foot American tables as oh, well, yeah. Yeah. and and some pool size snooker tables. So, you know, if you're looking for a good club, Massey, just okay. Google Massey Incorporated, yeah, Massa Inc. Awesome. So they're Hamilton and Aucklands generally. Great.
0: All right. Well, look, I'm you know, gone a little bit over time, but yeah, I really appreciate you um just having a chat because I just love this stuff because like I've just grown up with Snooker and just I'm a still obsessed with it now. And the world championship was on, I was pretty much watching every morning and evening session, which obviously vice versa, um in New Zealand and even in the final session trying to in the final trying to watch some of the the afternoon ones as well, because I didn't want to miss. <laughs> mm-hmm. Didn't was I wasn't sure if Ronnie was going to take it in the afternoon session before the the evening session. And I was yeah, he
1: could have won it. Yeah. but there was a, a bit of a comeback there, wasn't there from Judge? Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, but but uh, Ronnie, whenever he's threatened by somebody else playing well, Ronnie just lifts his game mm. almost every time. So. He can do that. He's that. He's that talented. He's got such an incredible, amazing natural gift, which he has honed as well. You know, it's yeah. You just can't. Yeah, you know, it's not. You just can't turn up with the with the ability and uh, without all the effort that goes in as well. Yeah, that's certainly the most talented player to ever ever hold a cue.
0: Oh, and that's what. And and that's, that's that's part of the reason I love Snooker as well is that. I'm watching the same guys that I was watching when I was six, still killing it. And I'm 30, 30, 35 soon. So it's quite cool just to see these guys that when I was almost a baby and they're still, So mm. it's it's so addictive to watch those players.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can have a good long career in snookers. So mm. that's a great advantage to it. But then, then there's the whole new breed of Asian players who are coming mm. through from, from China, especially in Southeast Asia. So Hong Kong, Thailand. Um, there's a lot more to come as well with the amount of academies they have, and the amount of players they have, it's just going to continue. so uh, um to the, the game more more players um, in the pro ranks. Um, so <clears throat> that's good. it's become a, become a much more a global sport, and mm-hmm. Eurosports is a sports channel that cover Snooker massively throughout Europe, the Middle East, Asia, mm-hmm. etc. and so some of the. You know, they yeah. they get access to five five hundred million viewers basically for um, snooker tournaments these days. So, yeah, it's 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 big stuff. Yeah, it's exciting time. Prize pretty 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 good as well. So, mm. and when I played, I we roughly played, we played only six seven or eight tournaments a year, but now you've got over thirty um, tournaments to choose from. And most players probably play about half that, I would mm. say, but there's there's options. Um, tournaments in Turkey, Gibraltar, throughout East and Western Europe. Um, you know, we used to play in Dubai a lot back in the early days, Yeah. so that was the, there's a lot of players come out of the Middle East as well, and, uh, mm. and uh, some are pros on the pro tour. So globally, the game is in a very, very strong position, the best it's ever been. Yeah, and that's what we need, right? You know, it's it's a bit similar, like
0: with darts as well. There's a lot of darts players from different countries now that are getting involved and having these tours. And yeah, like you said, there's some good Iranian players now, professionals, and Mm. just making it a multi, yeah, global sport will just start bringing in even more fans.
1: Yes, yes, I agree, and um, uh, it's great. You know, it's not just. I mean. In the early days, there were just a few players who were always in the tournaments and always on TV. So mm. they became very much household names. You know, we've mm. got been through some of those names already. But um, uh, global expansion for snooker, I, I'm glad it's happened. It's um, it's become a true international sport now. Mm. All right. Well, cheers, Dean.
0: And look, if you're ever in Wellington or from in Auckland, I'd love to you know, come and play a few games of nine ball or something. If you're, yeah. if you're around, yeah, look, look, see how look, the pros do it. Look.
1: <laughs> Cause I'm yeah, useless. <laughs> yeah. <I think> so. <laughs> Ex-professional. I'm not a pro professional now, but um, I still have to, um, I'll probably get back into it again next year at some stage, I think. And yeah, hmm. um, uh, I look forward to that, if, uh, if I can get into a good practice situation. So uh, I'm not going to turn up and just make up numbers. I'd have yeah. to feel good about my game to warrant yeah. playing in international um, Masters events, that sort of thing. So... um